about that time. Folks are coming in. Everybody got notes that's here? So uh, there's, a, there's a, new, a new introduction to the class just with what we're up to. And then there's a schedule. And then the notes should start on page 57. So I'll, I'll just uh, briefly talk about the, the first couple pages. So first of all, welcome. It's good to see everybody here. I think I recognized everyone's face from last semester. Uh, this is part two of going through Matthew. We're going to pick up in chapter 14. Same course description and course objectives as last semester, so I don't think I have to read through them. Uh, we do have a recommended textbook. You don't have to read it, but if you want to, uh, on the course schedule on the next page, I give you the page numbers that will roughly correspond to the things that we talk about in class. And then after that recommended textbook, I give you about uh, eight different books there that have been helpful to me. And I list them there because I'll reference them frequently in the notes with uh, references in, parent, in uh, parentheses, all right? If you flip the page to the next page, we've got a schedule. So if I'm not mistaken, this semester we actually have a little bit more time than we did last semester, another week or two, I think. So we go through April 26th, uh, but we take the last uh, Wednesday off in March. So I believe that's one of the kids in the school system have their spring break. And so we also take spring break here too as well. That's why I was told at least, right? So we'll be off March 29th, but otherwise we'll be going through and we'll try to look at one chapter each time, except that, rent, that left me one, uh, one week short. So we'll try to double up chapters 16 and 17 and uh, see how we go, okay? That's what we will be doing for the next uh, 14 weeks or so. So does everyone have page 57 in their notes? We'll, we'll dive in here at the end of chapter 13. So I'm calling it on the slide here in our schedule. I'm calling it chapter 14 just to make it easy with a, a round number. But it's really at the end of chapter 13. So chapter 13, verse 54... We have this statement, and I'll back up one verse in verse 53. It says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. So just as kind of a review of last semester, uh, Matthew has structured his gospel around five big discourses or teaching blocks of Jesus. Five either sermons or groups of parables. And we know that Matthew has done this because he ends each section with a phrase like, when Jesus had finished. All right, so we got one of those at the end of chapter 13 and verse 53. And then that leads right into this story of Jesus coming to his hometown of Nazareth and his identity being questioned. Okay? So we can just review for a little bit. Remember last semester we said... This is written by Matthew the Apostle, who's also called Levi in the, uh, in the Gospels. Uh, he was a tax collector. When Jesus 
found him and called him to follow him. Uh, he is obviously then an eyewitness of Jesus' life. Uh, he knows more about Jesus than he's able to put down here in writing, just like John will say at the end of his Gospels, that if he wrote everything down that Jesus had done and said, the books wouldn't be able to contain it. So out of everything that Matthew sees and knows about Jesus, he selected specific stories that he wants to tell us, true stories, and he's also arranged those topically so that they make one coherent big story about our Lord Jesus. And so he probably writes in the early 60s as he and the other apostles are ending, are nearing the end of their life. And um, he writes with frequent Old Testament references. It seems like he's writing primarily to his fellow Jewish people. He's trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen king the one who was promised in the Old Testament, who would someday come and make this world right. Of course, and when he starts out his story, Jesus is unusual. He has a spectacular birth. He's born to a virgin. Uh, his, his adopted father, Joseph, is told that he's supposed to be called Emmanuel because he will be God with us. So he's not only a king, but as the story goes along, we realize he's also God himself. He's not born into a good world. He's actually born into a world with all kinds of problems. His own people have somewhat returned from exile, but even the ones who have come back, the, the small group that came back to the promised land, they're under a bad king. Remember, Herod, at the very beginning of Jesus' life, is trying to kill him. But Jesus appears. He's baptized by John. The voice from heaven says that he's actually God's son. And as the story goes along, we realize that doesn't mean just as in an adopted sense, like the other kings of Israel were God's son, but he actually has God's very nature. There's a connection between him and God that no other person can claim. Uh, he is not only a king and God's son, but he's also a prophet. And that's probably one of the things that Matthew focuses on more than the other three, although I think all three of the other gospel writers do to some extent, but that's the fact that Jesus is the prophet like Moses that was promised in Deuteronomy 18. And he shows that through his teaching. So in the first teaching block, he goes up on a mountain and he sits down and teaches. And on that mountain, that what we call the Sermon on the Mount, he explains to people who listen and people today who are reading what true repentance would look like. True repentance is a work of the Spirit. It's an inward change that shows up in outward fruit. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing what repentance looks like. When we get to chapter 10, remember he sent out his 12 chosen apostles, men who would represent him. Men, at least 11 of them, are going to continue representing him after he's resurrected and ascended to heaven. And they're also not going out into a good world, right? Jesus tells them from the get-go that they're going to go out into a world where they're going to meet with mixed results. There's going to be lots of people who will reject them, and they'll outright be persecuted for his sake. So even early... In the gospel, we realize that Jesus and John are both calling the people of Israel, they're both calling the people of Israel to repent. 
the, the nation has to repent in order to receive their promised kingdom, but they're not going to repent. Some people are here and there, but if you look collectively at the nation as a whole, it's rejecting Jesus as their Messiah, and so they're going to have to wait a long time until Jesus' second coming, we find out, in order to actually be regathered and reconstituted as a nation. So when we get to the middle parable, or the middle discourse, that's the one we left off with last time, in chapter 13, Jesus basically answers the question, well, what happens now? Since the people of Israel have rejected him as king, since the kingdom that was promised is going to be postponed, so to speak, until the future, what about this long in-between time that you and I live in, that we now know is at least 2,000 years long? What's that world going to look like? And Jesus taught through in parables about the mixed reaction in the hearts of people who hear the gospel, the fact that his disciples will st start out small and insignificant, even like a mustard seed, but someday will grow into a huge constituency of kingdom citizens. So that's happening today. All around this world, there are an untold number of genuine believers who now accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They've been born again by the Spirit. They bear the fruit that he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. And someday he'll come from heaven and he will gather them together. He'll separate them from unbelievers and they will live with him in his kingdom forever. That's where we left off at the end of last semester. That's just a quick recap. In this next section, so this would be from the end of the parables of the kingdom up until we get to the next teaching block in chapter 18. I'm calling this section here at the top of your notes the mixed reactions to the king, okay? So Matthew's organized several little accounts or stories from Jesus' life where I, I just point out a couple things from this quote from Carson in bold print. Uh, these are just a few things that I think are important. Uh, these are themes that Matthew emphasizes in this section. So I'll just you know, tick those off one at a time. So first of all, Jesus extends, as Jesus extends his ministry, the opposition sharpens. Okay? So leading up to the cross, Jesus' final rejection, Matthew's going to show us more open hostility towards our Lord Jesus. Second of all, as Jesus is increasingly opposed by Jewish, Jewish leaders, so his own disciples become increasingly important. So by this time in the story, I think we've already figured out that what Jesus is telling us is that he's going to leave. There's going to be a time where the bridegroom is going to be gone and his disciples are going to have to fast. That's one of the sayings that he had. There's going to be a point where he's no longer there to physically protect them, where they're going to go out into a dangerous world and be persecuted and rejected. So in some ways, the, the, the light, the spotlight, so to speak, shifts a little bit away from Jesus and shines just a little bit more on the disciples in this final section. And remember, the disciples are representative of, of true believers, especially Peter. He's going to take a leading role. And I think as we read this section of, of the Matthew's Gospel, Peter represents us not only in his successes, but also in his failures. I think we see ourselves in Peter in both ways. And then finally, Carson says, rising less ambiguously now is the shadow of the cross. 
Jesus is going to start openly predicting the cross to his followers. Just one more thing that I want to add. I have it there at the, in the end of that paragraph. In addition to what Carson says there in his book, I think this section here is going to emphasize Jesus' true identity as God's Son. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. All right? So let's go down to the, the first little story, chapter 13, verses 54 through 58. Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, but it says there in verse 58, he can't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So these people, many of whom have known him since he's little, they demonstrate that they have the same lack of faith that the Pharisees have shown in chapters 12, for example. Some people will say that it's just the, the Pharisees or the leaders who are Jesus' enemies in the gospel. And that's just not true. The evidence doesn't support that. The, the rejection of Jesus is a widespread problem. It's a problem of the human heart. It definitely shows up in the leaders like the Pharisees, but it also showed up in just common people in the little village of Nazareth people who had known him since he was a little boy. And part of that is the stumbling block for them. Because look at what they say in verses 55 and 56. If you have your Bibles there, this is what the people in his own hometown say to him. They say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his... Are, are all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. So you see what they're saying there about him? Like, he's, he's just an ordinary guy. Like, we know his dad. His dad's a carpenter. We know his mom. We know his brothers. And then it lists off the names of the brothers, probably because some of them had already become famous in the church by the time Matthew writes. One of them, James, has become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But at this point, he's, he seems to be an unbeliever, someone who doesn't accept who his half-brother claims to be. They're sisters. They just think he's an average, normal guy. But you, as the reader of Matthew, you know that's not true. Is he really Matthew, our, our carpenter's son? Is he really Joseph's son? No. Joseph is only his adopted father. By this time in the story, you know that there's actually something different about Jesus' origins. And I think this whole next section really emphasizes this. So if you look at the, the quotes that I put up there in yellow, so we just read from chapter 13 and verse 55, where the people in Nazareth just say, well, isn't this the carpenter's son? He's just an average Joe. His dad's nobody special, okay? Parallel Parallel to that, when we get to the end of this big section in a couple weeks, in chapter 17, verse 24, you have the little story where the tax collector shows up and asks Peter, doesn't your, doesn't your master pay the tax? Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? I think those are both parallel statements. They're both derogatory. They both just assume he's a usual guy. So I think you could paraphrase that last one as, you know, isn't your tax or isn't your teacher just a regular tax-paying Joe? You know, we say the only two things that are certain in life are death and taxes, right? Everybody has to pay taxes. 
And this man just assumes Jesus is going to pay taxes like everybody else. But in between those two wrong views of Jesus' identity, Matthew three times is going to emphasize who Jesus really is. So chapter 14, the disciples are going to say, Truly, you are the Son of God, after they see him walking on water. Uh, Peter, at Caesarea Philippi, he's going to say, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then the God the Father himself, on the Mount of Transfiguration, is going to speak from heaven and say, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So sandwiched between two wrong views of Jesus' identity, I think Matthew wants us to focus on Jesus' true identity. And then if I can step back one layer on either side, it's not just Jesus' true identity, but also who we are as Jesus' followers. We actually constitute his true family. Because going back to chapter 12, verse 49, he said, here are my, brother, my mother and my brothers. Remember, the ones who do the will of my father are actually my true family members. In chapter 17, verses 26 and 27, he's going to call us children of the king who are actually exempt from paying the temple tax. Okay, So that's where we're headed over the next couple weeks. But I just wanted you to see that in this section, not only are we seeing this mixed reactions to the king, but we're also seeing an emphasis on his true identity and also our identity as his true family. All right? So that's, that, all was, that was a lot, but that was just the end of chapter 13. We'll jump into chapter 14, but we'll take questions. Well, if you, th- yeah, yeah, it's a good question. If you think through the miracles that Jesus does in the Gospels, he never seems to do them just to persuade people of who he is. So I can't think of any examples where someone comes up to him and they're hostile towards him or they're doubting who he is, and then he does it just to kind of prove himself. He actually always seems to do it the opposite way. People come up to him and they're trusting. Sometimes it's not perfect trust. Whose trust is perfect, right? But they're still trusting. They still believe, if I touch him, I'll be healed. If, if, I, if I come at, on my knees and beg him, he'll heal me. Or they're calling out, you know, son of David, have mercy on me. And so, and, and several times we've already seen, especially I'm thinking of uh, the instance with, um, you know, the woman who comes up and touches him, who's hem- hemorrhaging. Uh, their faith is actually mentioned. So I think the gospel writers want us to um, think about the importance of faith or trust in God and his promises, specifically the promises attached to Jesus. And so the, the miracles are, in the gospels, I think, attached to faith uh, because faith really is our basic commitment towards God. He's spoken to us, he's made promises to us, and we're supposed to take him at his word and trust 
Um, so I don't, I don't think I can think of any examples in the Gospels where someone lacks faith or demonstrates hostility and, and Jesus does something anyway. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a good question. Any other questions? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so faith faith is taking God at his word. I like the word trust. I know faith is kind of ingrained into our vocabulary, so it's hard to change. But, you know, if I could just wave a wand and change the English language, I'd have us all saying trust. Because I think trust captures the biblical concept more. And also, I think in our kind of... Uh, you know, culture right now, it's kind of trendy to be spiritual, to have faith. You'll talk to people that say, I have faith. But when you ask them about it, it tends to be just kind of a step out in the dark. And so I think, in, at least in our Western culture, we use faith as a shorthand for, I believe something even though I don't have a good reason for it, right? So some people believe stuff because they have reasons. I just believe stuff because I have faith. Well, that's actually not the biblical concept. Biblical faith is a, has a very good reason for it. It's because God said so. So if you go through Hebrews chapter 11, all of those men and women who are commended for their faith, they all believed God's promises. They were all told by God to do something, and they believed him. So faith isn't just throwing caution to the wind and just stepping out into the dark. It's taking God at his word. And, said, and that, I think, is what's commended in the Gospels, that in, in this large nation of people who are seeing Jesus and hearing about him, there's only a few who actually embrace that he's telling the truth, that he is who he claims to be. And uh, we know ultimately that that's because the, a work of the Spirit has taken place in their hearts. So one of the first, or the first story that Matthew chooses to tell us at this point in this big section is the actual death of John the Baptist. So he says in verse 1, at that time, but that statement is loose enough that it could mean that this has happened earlier. So it doesn't mean that Jesus goes to Nazareth you know, he has this confrontation with his, his, the people of his hometown, and then John, right after that, is, is, is beheaded. It just means at the general time that Matthew's been talking about. So John actually chronologically has probably died earlier, but Jesus is, or Matthew is choosing to tell us about it now. Flipping the page, we have this sordid little tale here in verses 3 through 12 about Herod's family and why John ends up in jail. Um, so basically, I, I, I thought it would be easier. I could just read the paragraph for you, but I'll put a family tree up here on the chart. Okay. I think one of the saddest things about this chart is the top, where it says this is a simplified family tree. So if this is the simplified family tree, I hate to see what the, the actual more detailed one would look like, right? So our... Our first main character is, is Herod the Great. So over there at the top right, remember he's the king at the time uh, that Jesus is born. Okay? He's the one who tried to kill him when he's an infant. He had 
children with at least five different women that we know of. So they're, they're listed in the row right after him. So that's his five different women that he had children with. And so obviously the sons are listed out in that second row underneath him. So over on the, the far right is a character named Philip. Philip is the, uh, the tetrarch who rules over the eastern end of Palestine. So after Herod died, remember we, we looked at this at a map a couple times, the country is divided up by the Romans underneath three of his sons, and those are the three sons to the right. So you have Archelaus, you had Herod Antipas, and then you had Philip. The confusing thing is it seems like Herod actually had another son named Philip. Now we know that at that time it wasn't that unusual to have close relatives with the same names. And after all, they do have different mothers. They do grow up in different uh, households. So he has two sons named Philip. Philip decides to marry his niece. Okay, So he has another half-brother just to the left of him named Aristobulus, who has a daughter named Herodias. Philip decides to marry her, and they have a child, a daughter named Salome, who shows up as the young girl in the story. But at one point, Herod Antipas, so another brother who's just called Herod, he's actually the one who's ruling over the area where John is preaching. He ends up, I think it's in Rome, if I remember the story right, and gets to know his brother's wife, who's actually also his niece, okay, because remember, uh, it was a niece that was married, and he decides he wants to marry her, okay? So he convinces Herodias to divorce his half-brother and to marry him, okay? Uh, Salome goes, obviously, with her mother to Herod's household. She's the young woman in the story who's probably only about 15 years old at this point, who dances for Herod, pleases him, gets him to make a drunken promise, goes back to her mother, and her mother convinces her to ask for John's uh, head on a plate. And then just to finish out the, the horrible tale, we know later Salome, the girl in this story, she goes and actually marries the other Philip in the family. So she'll, she'll actually end up marrying one of her other uncles. Okay, that's, that's, that's Herod's family. I tell you all that not just as a historical tidbit, but just so you understand what a horrible situation John bravely walks into and calls them to repentance. These are people in power who are living wicked lives, and he doesn't seem to be fearful of them. He boldly walks in and says, you have to repent. After all, these are the people who are claiming to be the rulers of Israel, right? So they, they're part of the nation, right? Probably ethnically, they're more related to Esau, to the Edomites, but they're now at this point ruling over Israel. Uh, they're called to repentance. They don't heed John's warnings. And John, in the middle of this, this whole ugly soap opera of a drama, ends up dying. You have the, the prophet that Jesus said was the greatest of the prophets. Remember he said that among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John, but even the greatest of the prophets in this time that you and I live in, this dangerous time, can still face opposition for their, his loyalty to God, all right? 
I think the other thing about this story with John, we won't really dive deep into this, but I think there's a lot of parallels between John's death and Jesus' coming death. Okay? And I think that's deliberate in the story. So the same type of treatment that Jesus is going to receive, as Jesus himself said, is the kind of treatment that his followers, like you and I, should be ready for. And it certainly happened to, to John, his cousin and his greatest of prophets. Any, any questions there about uh, the, the incident with Herod and, and John? All right. Well, let's go to some better stuff then. All right. So at the end, I'll, I'll flip the slide. We'll just turn the page on their family tree. At the end of page 58 there, just give a little paragraph again. I'm, I'm relying on Carson's great commentary for some of the content here. So there's another set of three miracles. It seems like Matthew genuinely likes sets of three. We've seen this before. Uh, he chooses here to have the, the feeding of the 5,000, the Jesus walking on water, and then this little short story, verses 34 through 36, where sick people come up and touch his cloak. And I think that one especially, even though it's short and it might be easy for us to skip over, I think it's very important because when we come back next week, the next story is going to be a question about defilement. And I think we're supposed to connect the two. The people come up to Jesus who have sicknesses and need to be healed. And just like the woman with the hemorrhage, they believe that if they touch his cloak, so Jewish men on their outer cloaks would have had little tassels that would have hung down on the edges. So it's probably one of those tassels that we're supposed to be thinking of. Uh, if, they, if they did that, they believe that they could be healed. And Jesus does not seem to be concerned at all about them making him ritually unclean. He does not see himself as being able to be contaminated by their sicknesses. Instead, it's the other way around. When they touch him, when they come in contact with him, he's able to remove their contamination or remove their, their ailments. He's able to make them whole. I think that's an important point of the story. Let's talk a little bit about the, the feeding of the the 5,000, so at the top of page 59, this is in verses 13 through 21, if you're following along. If you're ever doing Bible trivia and someone asks you what's the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels, would you have known the answer? It's the feeding of the 5,000. It's kind of surprising, right? There's other ones that we would have thought of as more spectacular, but the only one that shows up in all four is uh, the feeding of the 5,000. Of course, there's a bunch of them that show up in the first three, because remember the first three have a lot in common. But John, he's pretty unique. He seems to have picked out seven specific signs, but he also picks um, the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. He's the one who, uh, who makes uh, mention, I think, uh, alongside of Matthew, of many elements uh, that indicate that uh, that this is supposed to be a connection to Moses. All right, I'm just going to read a little bit because I've lost my place. Let me just read a little bit of that first paragraph. So uh, paragraph A, it says, It seems to portray Jesus as a new and better Moses deliberately. This portrayal is especially evident in John's account. So you can check me later, but if you go to John chapter 6, he's the one that adds that this took place on a mountainside. 
He tells us that it happened when Passover was near. He's the one that tells us that the people, and I have this up here on the board, when they see the sign, they say, surely this is the prophet. So, which makes sense, right? The, the miracle that Moses was probably most known for, besides the, the, the Exodus account, you know, the plagues and whatnot, was the manna that came down from heaven to feed the people in the wilderness. We have lots of evidences from Jewish literature between the Old Testament and the New Testament that they talked frequently about the manna from heaven, and they believed that someday a prophet would come who, like Moses, would be able to give them bread from heaven. And Jesus is clearly going to do that. He's going to do it once for 5,000, I think a Jewish crowd, and then we're going to see later he does it again, I think, for a predominantly Gentile crowd, and he feeds 4,000. Okay? So when they see this take place, John chapter 6, verses 14 through 15, He's the prophet, and they're ready to grab him and make him king by force, which I think then explains why Jesus sends his disciples away. So if we only had Matthew's account, it seems kind of odd to us that all of a sudden it says in verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? It's not just like he told them to go into the boat, or you know, he helped them get into the boat. It's he made them get in the boat. He, he forced them into the boat, okay? John, writing, you know, uh, probably about 30-some years later, he's able to fill in some of the blanks for us. So I've really emphasized reading the gospel account on its own straight through and thinking about what Matthew has written. But the beauty of, of the New Testament is we also have other gospel writers that sometimes we can read in parallel fashion. So John tells us why Jesus was so urgent to get his disciples into a boat. It's because the crowd wanted to make him king by force. He gets his disciples out of the way, and then he goes up on a mountainside to pray. Evidently, going down to point two, evidently he seems to think that he's going to catch up to them later. So here's where Mark fills in some more details for us. So Jesus feeds the 5,000. He not only is able to feed them, but he's got 12 basketfuls of food left over. He's got plenty to spare. The crowd is ready to grab him and make him king. He puts his disciples in a boat, and he tells them to take off, get out of the commotion. But they're only supposed to go a short distance. So he's on the eastern side of the, of the lake, and they're only supposed to go up to Bethsaida. So if we kind of remind ourselves of what the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, looks like, he's probably somewhere over near where it says Gergesa or just south of where it says Bethsaida. Bethsaida is a little bit of a moving target. We're not exactly sure where Bethsaida was located. It's also possible that there was two places with that name. But we know for certain that uh, eventually they're supposed to cross completely over the lake. Jesus probably wants to go back to Capernaum, or what's actually going to end up happening is they're going to land at Gennesaret. You see that on the western end of the top of the lake there? And it's in Gennesaret that Matthew tells us people came up and were touching him and being healed. So I think, putting together all the pieces, the commotion takes place after the feeding. Jesus tells them to just travel a little bit north and find a nice, quiet piece of beach to wait for him. 
he's going to go up on the mountain and pray. Then he's going to meet them, and they're going to cross the lake. But at some point, he's been praying for a long time, and it's getting late, and they decide to take off on their own, which this is a little bit of reading between the lines, so you have to do that cautiously, but that was probably a mistake on their part, to take off without Jesus. So they take off, they're experienced with the lake, but this is a really big lake. So another thing that this picture reminds us of that we've talked about before is that the Sea of Galilee is basically like a, a cereal bowl. It sits in a, a deep valley with high mountains on either side, and it's got a, a canyon to the north where water feeds into it, and that creates a wind tunnel. Winds will come up quickly, blow over the surface of that, that warm lake, I'm not a meteorologist, but I'm told that that creates really rough water. We shouldn't confuse this with the, parable, or the story earlier where the men think they're going to die. So you remember that story earlier where Jesus is sleeping in the boat. They actually think they're going to die because the storm's so bad. In this instance, the storm isn't so bad that they're dying, but the storm is bad enough that they're just getting tired of rowing. All right, so picking up there in point two... Matthew tells us that they've rowed a considerable distance in the NIV. So a more word-for-word translation would be mini stadia is the word he used. A stadia, that we get that, that measurement because it was the distance around a stadium. So if he had traveled, John tells us, if they had traveled 25 or 30 stadia, that means that uh, they've traveled about three to four miles. So a stadia was about one-eighth of a mile, one lap around one of their big racetracks. And if John, as John says, they've rode 25 or 30 of those, they're about three to four miles across. So that wide part of the lake is five miles across at the top, all right? So this is a, an actual picture from today. It reminds us of how mountainous it is around the sea and also that this is a big sea, okay? This is a big body of water. And they've been rowing all night long. When Jesus finally catches up to them, it's three, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. As the NASB and the ESV say, it's the fourth or fifth watch of the night. And I'm having to take other people's words for this, right? But the, the, the common consensus is that that's much, much longer than it should have taken them to row across. So you put that all together. I'm, I know I'm using a little bit of my imagination here, but you know, they were told, just go up a little bit north, find a quiet spot, wait for me. They get impatient. Jesus goes up to pray, as he frequently did, especially after what's just happened there with the crowd. They get tired of waiting. They take off because they think they can quickly get to the other side, but they get caught off guard by a strong wind, and they're having to row against uh, waves that are increasing, and even though they're experienced, now they find themselves in the middle of the night only about three-fifths of the way across. And it's in that type of situation that they see Jesus walking out to them on the water. So, I mean, if I can just switch a little bit from teaching through the text and maybe just preach a little bit, just think of application. You know, you and I are probably never going to find ourselves in that exact same situation, right? Uh, the middle of the night three-fifths of the way across a big lake, rowing. I know I will never find myself in that situation. I can't imagine myself ever doing that. 
But there will be situations in our life when we live in this in-between time between Jesus' first coming and second coming where you'll be doing something and you'll be discouraged. I will be doing something and I'll be discouraged. We'll be tired. You'll be asking yourself, will I ever get to the other side? Will I ever get through that trial? I think Matthew deliberately tells us this story because it's supposed to still have application for us today. It's in those instances when we feel like we'll never get to the other side, we'll never get through this trial, it's hopeless, we've just been doing it forever, that Jesus is able to still come find us. Because remember, in a sense, in a sense, he has never really left. Because what did he promise at the end of Matthew's gospel? What's the climax that we're working towards? I will be with you always, even until the very end of this age. So I think one of the things that's going on at this point in Matthew's gospel, when he shows us more about the disciples, is he's supposed to be reminding us, first of all, he's trying to remind us, first of all, that we need to hang on and keep our eyes focused on Christ during this time that we live in. And second of all, this goes back to that slide where we saw who, what Jesus' true identity was. We're also supposed to hang on to the fact that he's worthy of that trust, that he's actually a sure anchor that we can fix our hope on because he truly is the Son of God. So that's what happens in the story, right? He walks out on water. Uh, verse 27, you know, they've just said it looks like a ghost when they first see him. But Jesus, you know, he immediately cries out to them. He says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. So that's, that's a key statement. I've got it highlighted here in my Bible. I think when he says, it is I, another way you could translate that would be I am. So just like the I am statements in John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the good shepherd. Um, I think this is supposed to remind us of God's revelation to Moses at the burning bush. So remember, at the burning bush, the angel of the Lord, which I think I take to be the second person of the Trinity, so the second person of the Trinity, who now has been incarnate as Jesus Christ, speaks to Moses out of the burning bush to tell him to go to Pharaoh, and he reveals himself as the, the I Am, and to not be afraid. I think the same person now in human form, walking out to his disciples on the water, says to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then Peter, who represents us, I think, he's excited. He believes, it is, it's my Lord. He immediately believes it, he immediately gets out of the boat, he thinks he can walk, and he starts walking for a while. But then he takes his eyes off of Jesus he gets distracted by the, the wind and the storm around him. He takes his eyes off of the object of his faith, and he begins to sink, right? He, again, it's something that will never literally happen to us, but I think it's something that we all can apply to ourselves. When we've gone through trials that we thought would never end, and we've taken our eyes off of our Savior, but it's even in those moments that he is still there reaching out a hand to Peter, and to people like us, grasping them and saving them. So they get back into the boat, uh, the wind stops, 
And they, it says there in verses uh, 32 and 33, And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Then they, they finally land, maybe a little bit off course from where they originally attended. Uh, Matthew tells us it's by that village of Gennesaret. And it's there that many people recognize Jesus. And they come up and they touch him and he's able to heal many of them. All right? Well, I actually went through that quicker than I thought. So is, there's plenty of time for questions. So questions about that chapter, even questions about this last semester that you maybe thought of. And uh, we can pick up with chapter 15 next time. So I think one of the... Uh, one of the things we're supposed to do with the 12 baskets full is we're supposed to ask ourselves, you know, if God, if, if Jesus, the Christ, is able to do this for the Jewish people, what about us as Gentiles? And I think the answer to that is twofold. First of all, there's, there's baskets left over. There's plenty of them. And then just a little bit later in the story, Jesus is going to go to Gentile territory and he's going to perform the exact same miracle, but with a Gentile crowd, right? And which I think is an ongoing theme. So remember, um, Matthew's writing to his fellow Jewish people. He really emphasizes the Old Testament. He wants to make clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, that he will restore Israel. There's a big emphasis on Israel, a Jewish flavor, if I can say it that way. But he also really emphasizes the, uh, the Gentile inclusion, the salvation of the Gentiles. I was thinking about this again, you know, the story or the miracle story that Mark and Luke start with is the healing of the demoniac in the synagogue in, uh, I think it's, Caper is it Capernaum or Nazareth? Anybody remember? I can't remember offhand. I hadn't thought about that for a while. I was reading something over Christmas break and that reminded me. So both Mark and Luke out of all of the miracles that Jesus performed, when they decided to pick one to go first, they picked that one. So, which is a, it's a powerful story. Jesus is in the synagogue on a Sabbath. They're having a worship service. And there's a man there who everyone seems to be okay with, but he actually has a demon. Maybe they didn't realize that. And if that's not bad enough, when Jesus heals him, they're all upset about it because he did it on the Sabbath, okay? which I think is an indictment on their whole religious system. But Matthew doesn't pick that one. Remember the one Matthew picks? When Jesus comes down from the mountain, the first miracle story is the healing of the centurion's servant. So he takes a Gentile, someone who was an oppressor. You know, the centurions, I'm sure, were not very popular in their culture. And that's the, the healing story are that are the miracle that Matthew starts with. So don't lose sight of that as we go through this. That yes, there is a great emphasis on the fact that the people of Israel someday will repent and they'll be reconstituted as a nation. But they'll just be one piece of an empire, if I can put it that way. It'll be a global empire with lots of nations, all kinds of diversity, all of them underneath one good king who will rule forever. That's That's also part of part of Matthew's story. All right, any final questions or thoughts? Yep. Didn't that tie in with the Psalms? It seemed like scattered 
bits and pieces here and there about the nations uh, all coming to praise God and just kind of a, you know, a prophecy or foretaste of, uh, you know, of, of the nations being saved. Yes, absolutely. I do think that that gets overlooked. Um, so Psalm 2 is a classic example. Remember, it looks like in Psalm 2 that God the Father is speaking to God the Son. And he says, ask me and I will give you the nations as an inheritance. So it was always the promise to Abraham was that he would be a blessing to the nations, to the whole world. And it was always promised that the Messiah would rule from sea to sea or from horizon to horizon. It was always a global empire. So empire might be a way to think about the coming kingdom. It's definitely centered in Jerusalem. It has the people of Israel in a prominent position, but it also includes all of us who are, who are faithful to Jesus Christ because of what he's done to us. Any other thoughts or questions? All right, Lord willing, I will see you next week. You guys don't mind getting out a little early, do you? Okay, I didn't think so.